Welcome to the Paranormal States of America. I'm your host, John Devine, and I want to start by thanking you for listening to this show. This is the first episode in our state-by-state look at the paranormal in America. Ghost stories in the United States are as American as baseball and apple pie. They are told in big-budget Hollywood productions, and they are told around campfires in the middle of the woods. Sometimes they are made up for maximum scares, but other times the stories are set around real places and real deaths. Virginia has no shortage of history, tragedy, and hauntings. The modern history of Virginia begins in 1607, when what would be the first permanent English colony, Jamestown, was founded. Within three years, a dark tragedy would mark the first chapter in the state's history. Life in the Jamestown colony was not easy. The land was swampy and disease spread throughout the settlement from the beginning. Food was scarce, but fortunately, trade with local native tribes was able to sustain the colony during the first couple of years. This changed in late 1609 when drought made food scarce for all in the area, including the local Powhatan tribe. When the settlers demanded more food from the tribe, ties were cut off. In fact, the English stayed within the gates of the fort for fear that they would be killed by the Powhatans if they ventured out for food. The settlers knew a supply ship would be coming soon. What they didn't know was that the supply ship, the Sea Venture, was forced to run aground at the island of Bermuda due to bad weather and rough seas. When the supply ship didn't come, the colonists became desperate. When you're starving, everything that can be food becomes food. The animals they brought from England were the first to go, the horses, cats, and dogs. Then they turned to vermin like rats, mice, and snakes. Even shoe leather became a meal. But when all that proved not to be enough, they ate the last thing they would ever want to, the flesh of the recently dead. Notes and journals from settlers told of the colonists resorting to cannibalism for survival. In 2012, the first archaeological evidence of cannibalism was found. The remains of a young female settler were found to have gouge marks on the skull, and researchers say this is from the colonists using tools to separate the soft tissue and the brain from the bone. In the spring of 1610, when supply ships finally arrived in Jamestown, they found that only 60 of the 250 settlers had survived the winter. Today, the Jamestown settlement is a historic site, with reenactors telling the story of the colony's history to visitors. But not all of those in colonial clothing are actors. Some are spirits of the original settlers, wandering the areas around the old fort where they suffered in life and are bound to in death. Visitors have reported seeing a young woman in 17th century clothing walking the grounds, only to disappear in front of them. Adversity is a normal part of trailblazing. Virginia would find this out again in 1773. On October 12th of that year, the Eastern Lunatic Asylum opened its doors and admitted its first patient. It had more polite names, the Eastern State Hospital and the Public Hospital of Williamsburg, but those are just rebrandings for what it was, the first psychiatric hospital in the United States. This wasn't a well-intentioned effort to treat and cure mental illness. It was a place to store the mentally ill away from the rest of society.
the so-called treatments were normal for the times, but would be considered cruel by today's standards. Plunge baths in cold water, bleedings, and electroshocks were used as a means of eliminating the insanity from the body. In 1841, Dr. John Galt took over as superintendent of the facility. Galt ushered in an era of moral management, resulting in more humane treatment of the patients. Restraints were used less often, and patients were given more freedom outside the facility. He encouraged more talk therapy, something more modern than the other so-called treatments in use at the facility. Galt was a proponent of deinstitutionalization, a very progressive idea at the time. This idea was dismissed by the directors of the hospital, leading Galt to be distressed by the lack of consideration given to his patients. Deinstitutionalization gained popularity in the late 20th century, so Galt was really ahead of his time. When the Civil War's Battle of Williamsburg took place on May 5, 1862, the White Hospital staff fled the facility, locking the 252 patients in their rooms to starve. Somerset Moore, the only white staffer who returned to the hospital after the Union Army took control on May 6, gave the Army the keys to the rooms to save the patients. Dr. Galt, who had been removed from the hospital by the Union Army, upset by the care of the patients, overdosed on laudanum, a strong opiate, in the superintendent's house located on the hospital grounds. He took so much of the drug that blood vessels in his brain burst, causing massive bleeding. He was found on the floor in a pool of his own blood. The story goes that when the new superintendents, the Lee family, moved into the house, they couldn't clean the blood stain from the floorboards. Even after replacing the boards, they said that the stain returned. The Lee children reported seeing a man in the room where Galt was found. The Galt house was torn down, but even after that, it is believed that the spirit just moved over to the hospital. Strange gusts of wind would appear out of nowhere, and objects would get moved or disappear entirely. The old hospital is now a museum, and workers and visitors report that one of the exhibition beds will appear as if someone had slept in it the previous night, even though no one was present. We can't talk about Virginia's past without talking about the Civil War. It was a painful part of American history, and Virginia bears some of the biggest scars. It was the capital of the Confederacy, so Union efforts to advance on Richmond resulted in numerous battles in this state. The Second Battle of Cold Harbor took place May 31st to June 12, 1864. It took place on much of the same ground as the Battle of Gaines Mill that took place two years earlier, where over 15,000 soldiers lost their lives. On May 31, 1864, the Union Army, led by Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant, took a strategic crossroads from the Confederates, led by General Robert E. Lee. Grant's Union force numbered 108,000 compared to Lee's 62,000. Sensing the opportunity to decimate Lee's forces only 12 miles outside of Richmond, Grant prepared a plan to attack the Confederates on June 2nd. But there was a problem. Reinforcements did not arrive as expected, and Grant pushed the charge back to June 3rd. The extra day gave Lee the chance to regroup and entrench. On the morning of June 3rd, at 4.30 a.m., Grant didn't know what he was sending his troops into, but the order was given to charge the Confederate line. They were met with gunfire from Lee's forces. Bodies were falling by the dozens. Within an hour, 7,000 Union soldiers were either dead or wounded. Seeing the failure, Grant called off the attack at 12.30. You would think that this would be the worst part of the battle. Well, it got a bit worse. The wounded soldiers, stuck in no man's land between the lines, weren't recovered right away. 
They were on the field for not one, not two, not three, but four days before Grant called a temporary ceasefire to pull his wounded off the field. After four days laying in the hot sun in a mixture of mud and blood, many died from their injuries. I can't imagine the horror of listening to your brothers in arms dying on the field for four days, screams of pain and anguish filling the air. Visitors to the battlefield have reported a strange fog that appears and disappears quickly, perhaps residue from long-ago cannon fire. Maybe spirits of the lost soldiers still stuck on the battlefield. Other visitors report heavy feelings of anguish and despair, not surprising considering the horrific deaths that were suffered by soldiers here. The feelings of temporary possessions where visitors feel that they themselves suffered wounds and death on the battlefield of Cold Harbor are also not uncommon. Virginia's location on the mid-Atlantic seaboard means that many major travel routes go through the state. The city of Stanton in the Shenandoah Valley was a major trading center in western Virginia, aiding in the expansion of the colonies and contributing to the success of the Revolutionary War. It is also notable as the birthplace of President Woodrow Wilson. The Virginia Central Railroad came to Stanton in 1854. The commercial area that sprang up around the Stanton Depot was known as the Wharf and is still a main part of the city today. In 1861, the Civil War left its first mark on the Stanton train depot. D.C. McLurie, a Confederate soldier, was struck by a train at the station. His ghost is sometimes seen around the tracks. In June 1864, Union General David Hunter recognized the importance of the town to the war effort, so he did what any good general would do. He had his men set fire to the many structures in the town, including the train depot. After the war ended in 1865, the train depot was rebuilt. It is the second version of the Stanton train depot that gave the station its most well-known spirit. But this story doesn't start in Virginia. It starts in Kansas City, Missouri in the fall of 1889. A theater company was touring, performing the operetta The Pearl of Pekin. During one evening performance, fate put 17-year-old Myrtle Ruth Knox in the audience. She was enthralled by the performance and knew she wanted to make singing her career. She begged the management of the theater troupe to allow her to join as a chorus girl. After a while, they agreed to let her join the group on tour. This didn't sit well with Miss Knox's family. It was said that her father followed her from theater to theater to convince her not to quit her job as a telegraph operator at the Midland Hotel there in Kansas City. But being 17 and getting a taste of her dream to be a singer, she stayed on tour. On April 26, 1890, the acting troupe boarded the Cincinnati Express train bound for Baltimore for their next leg of the tour. In the early morning hours of April 28, 1890, Knox was asleep aboard the Austerlitz, the second sleeping car of the Cincinnati. As the train started into the Shenandoah Valley, the brakemen applied air pressure to the brakes to slow their descent down the steep incline. It didn't work. As the train came closer to the Stanton train depot, the cars were rocking violently along the twisting and turning track, tossing its occupants around the cars. Miss Knox held on as best she could. The baggage car was the first to strike the station hitting the roof of the covered breezeway on the platform, the heavy roof beams being flattened by the impact. Wood splinters tore through the other cars. The Austerlitz was the last to make contact with the depot. Despite the destruction of the train cars and the station, all were able to survive with minor injuries, all except for Myrtle Ruth Knox. One of her legs was nearly severed. The other had a wood splinter up the length of the leg. 
Another splinter pierced her femoral artery. She died within minutes. Despite never making it to Baltimore to make her East Coast debut, she is a star attraction at the Stanton train depot. She can still be seen on the platform. It is said she likes to pull on the hair of female travelers as they walk through the station. Before continuing, I want to acknowledge that many locations don't have as much historical backing to their paranormal claims. These are usually placed into the category of urban legends, but these stories have had an impact on the people in those areas, so they merit inclusion on this show. There's a 3.6-mile stretch of road in rural York County that is considered to be the most haunted road in the state. Crawford Road is so legendary for its paranormal activity that many locals avoid the road completely. Although the road now has development on both sides of it, the road was more isolated in the 1980s and 1990s, making it a site where the bodies of murder victims would be discovered. One well-known story around Crawford Road involves a phenomenon that is commonly known as the woman in white. These spirits are women who have been betrayed by their lovers or have lost a child. Distraught, they take their own life. In the case of Crawford Road, an unhappy bride-to-be took her life by hanging herself from the overpass on the road. Drivers have seen an apparition in a white gown standing on the bridge, then jump from it, stop in midair, and sway back and forth as if it was hanged. Other stories claim that lynchings and other hangings were done from the bridge, and drivers have seen black figures hanging from the overpass. Many car accidents have occurred near the bridge when drivers swerve to avoid hitting figures in the middle of the road. Some of these accidents have been fatal. One encounter on the road involved a group of friends driving, listening to a new CD. When they reached the bridge, the music they were listening to had become a high-pitched scream for about 10 seconds. When they were far enough away from the bridge, the song started playing normally again. But the screaming sound was embedded on the CD, the track forever being a tribute to the spirits of Crawford Road. Another story is that a group of teens experienced strange things at the bridge. While driving, they felt as though they ran over something. They got out of the car, but saw nothing. When they got back in the car, the windows began to fog up, and handprints appeared on the window from the outside. Terrified, they started the car and continued to drive. Soon, they began to hear thuds around the car, a thud on the windshield, moving to the top of the car, then the trunk. After the thuds stopped, they heard a smearing sound at the back window. They heard it slide down until it fell off and hit the road. They got out of the car, and again, nothing was there. The road is not the only source of paranormal sightings in the area. There is an abandoned building that lies off the road and has no doors. Stories claim that if you look inside the building, red eyes may appear in one of the do open doorways. The eyes supposedly watch you as you move around, but disappear if you get too close. Voices are also heard in the building, as well as the feeling of having your feet stepped on and having hands on your back. These stories, if true, would indicate a stronger, more sinister presence at the building than the apparitions that appear near the bridge. The final story on this episode is another one in the urban legends category. But unlike the other stories, this isn't one haunted location. It's an entire town. The town of Occoquan is a small town of 934 people in Prince William County in northern Virginia, situated on the banks of the Occoquan River. By some counts, there are 18 haunted places in Occoquan. 
Not too bad for a town with a main street you can walk from end to end in a few minutes. The ghosts also make a nice tourist attraction, with organized ghost tours running throughout the year that blend history and hauntings. I grew up not far from this town, so the ghost stories here are more personal to me, including one sighting of my own from when I was a kid. The land the town sits on was originally inhabited by the Dogue Indian tribe. The name Akakwan means at the end of the water. The English colonists set up an industrial settlement here in 1765. Akakwan was formally established in 1804. As I said, there are lots of haunted buildings in Akakwan. I'm not going to cover all 18, but here are some of the most notable ones. 312 Commerce Street. The ghost in this building is said to change the thermostat and unscrew light bulbs, but to make up for the mischief, it sweeps the floor for the residents. 206 Mill Street. A ghost named Charlotte loves it when the new merchandise comes in. At night when the stores have closed, she will rearrange the new stock, and she leaves a flower behind when she leaves. 301 Mill Street, the Akakwan Inn. Legend is that the last Dogue Indian in Akakwan was killed by the owner of the building for making romantic advances toward the owner's wife. The spirit of the Indian haunts the building, turning on faucets and appearing in the mirror of the women's restroom, but when the women turn around, no one is there. 302 Mill Street, Leary's Lumber and Hardware Store. Built in the 1860s, the hardware stores supply the town and the surrounding community with all their general merchandise needs. The old sales counter is still inside the front window where it is said to be used by the building's apparition, but only after business hours. Mrs. Leary used to chase kids away to keep her corner quiet. This is the haunting that I have had personal experience with. When I was a kid, between the ages of four and seven, I was with my mom in the town just walking around. It started to rain, so we went back to our car, which was parked along the curb in front of 302 Mill Street. Now, even as a kid, I knew the town had ghosts, but I didn't know where. My mom opened the passenger car door first to let me inside. I got in, and when I reached back to pull my seatbelt over my shoulder, I looked at the building and I saw the apparition of an elderly woman pulling back the curtain, looking out the window at me as if to make sure I wasn't causing trouble at her store. When my mom got in the car, she described me as pale and looking, and looking like I had just seen a ghost. That's my experience with the ghost of Akakwan. 307 Mill Street. People have reported seeing a female spirit carrying a candle here to warm up cold winter mornings. 309 Mill Street. This was once the primary funeral parlor for a two-county area. During one major flood, water filled the building, pulling several caskets into the river. They could be seen floating toward the Potomac. People believe the spirit here is one of the undertakers from the past. Footsteps are often heard at the stores that now occupy the building, even when no one else is there. 313 Mill Street. No one knows who the ghost is, but sooty footprints have been seen inside the building. Whispering voices and rearranged merchandise are also reported here. And that concludes our look at some of the lesser-known but unique ghosts in Virginia. There's a lot we didn't cover, so you could bet this show will be taking another look at the ghosts of this state on a future episode. The next episode will stay in Virginia, but instead of talking about earthbound spirits, I'll be talking about UFOs potentially from another world. I'll be covering some of the unexplained Project Blue Book cases and the recently confirmed UFO videos from the U.S. Navy, some of which were filmed off the Virginia coast. If you like this episode, please follow this podcast on Spotify to make sure you get the latest episodes. Follow the show on Facebook at the Paranormal States of America. 
I would also greatly appreciate it if you help spread the word about the show to your friends. Until next time, I'm your host, John Devine, and I hope to see you here for the next episode of the Paranormal States of America. Thank you.